Hi, I'm Sissy Graham Lynch. Welcome to Fearless, helping you have a fearless faith in a compromising culture. So my colleague at work always says that today's church is a mile wide and an inch deep, and that bad ideas are mainstreaming in culture and including the body of Christ. And these bad ideas have not only infiltrated the church, but due to the lack of biblical knowledge, I believe that the church has opened up their arms to these false teachings. And with culture and with education systems, and now even the churches adopting and pushing bad ideas onto our children— it can just be extremely overwhelming to a parent. Because we as Christian parents, we want nothing more than knowing our children are walking with the Lord and in His truth. And that's the truth, whether our children are five or 45, as a parent, that continues to be our prayer. And it seems to be getting harder and harder to teach our kids truth when they are faced with all these ideas. So whether today you're listening and you're a parent, you're Sunday school teacher, an aunt, an uncle, or you're a coach, we all need to be prepared to answer many of these questions children will have. And we need to be able to have practical ways that we can help our children think for themselves and how to help them understand what truth is. So I've asked uh, my friend Jay Warner Wallace back to Fearless uh, to help us with this issue. I think you might have been one of my first guests here on Fearless. So welcome back, Jim. Well, that was fun the first time we were in Alaska. So now we get to do this, you know, remotely, which is always a challenge. But I think we're, all, we're going to knock it out of the park. So I'm glad to be here. Well, hope, hopefully maybe I've grown a little more since um, since the first time I interviewed you being a nervous wreck. But for those that don't know... Uh, Jim was a homicide detective who turned into one of the world's best Christian apologists, and I'd probably embarrass him in saying that, but that's what I believe. I read his books, listen to his podcast. Um, he was a detective who took his uh, investigative skills to the life of Jesus, which forever changed his life. And as a father, as a teacher, and a former detective, he now— um, not only has written books based on his investigative discoveries that prove Jesus is real, but has also written books for children to discover truth. So today I've asked Jim to help us with some of these practical ideas. And because Jim, I'm a parent, you know my children. Margaret is eight and Austin is five. And I am entering into this, I think those early years, those are the easy years. I never wanted out of those easy years because you just had to teach them like, no, don't do that. Like, just keep them safe. Mm. And now my children are beginning to ask questions. So this is a challenge for me. I need this podcast. I need to learn from you. I hope those who are listening, like I said, it's not just for parents. We all have influence in the children's lives. So thank you for taking the time to do this with us today. Well, and I agree with you. I think that, you know, looking at the statistics, and I've been collecting these, I kind of came up through children's ministry when I first became a Christian. And then I was in upper elementary ministry, like, you know, like fifth and sixth graders for a number of years in a huge church. And then I started doing a youth group uh, with uh, junior high and high school. And and I, most of my audiences even today are high schoolers. And so I, I, I have a passion for this Gen Z group that is, you know, between the ages of let's say you know five and and 22 in that range and and i i, I do see that this the statistics tell us and i've been collecting these for years and all the surveys um that really the age of decision is is dropping you know it used to be that most people decided whether this was true or not whether christianity was true by the age of about 18 
and very few became Christians after that, relative to the larger group. But now that's dropped. There's good reason to believe that's dropped to around the age of 12. Wow. And the reason so why that's the that, case— get to middle school. Yeah, it's because we're giving our kids phones, the glowing rectangle, by the time they are in middle school. And if that's where they are exposed for the first time, you know, maybe a generation ago, it would have been in college. But now you're being exposed to all the the other ways of seeing the world um, by way, way of the internet. And so that's why I think it's important for us. And when we wrote kids' books, we were targeting that range, you know, 8 to 12, because I think that's mm-hmm. really where these conversations need to occur. And I always say one of my favorite Bible verses, our children are olive shoots around our table. And the olive shoots, you know, have like about 12 years before they start producing. So, um that's right around there. We have this short window to speak truth. Yeah. So as you know better than most, parents face huge challenges starting now in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. We see what some education systems are pushing onto our children at such a young age where children have these ideas planted in their little minds that attack our Christian teachings. So how can parents begin at this young age to counter this um, early education process? Two things that we discovered, I wrote a book about this with Sean McDowell uh, called So the Next Generation Will Know. And what we looked at was the data. It turns out that two things are persuasive when combined together. It's uh, facts, information, coupled with relationship. So this is why you know a, a, um, when a stranger writes a book and and you you know then your kids read it it has some impact because there's information in there but I don't have a relationship with those kids who are reading the book you try to develop a kind of a, a reading relationship as an author but it turns out that parents are the ones who have this so I always say no parents need to read those books with their kids and really be become the source of information like don't defer that to somebody else you know don't think well my youth pastor or my children's pastor is going to take care of all that. No, that's going to be our responsibility because we're the one, they might feel like I'm under-equipped. Okay, I have the relationship with my kids, but I don't have the information I need. Well, and Jim Wallace, he's got the information I need, but has no relationship with my kids. Well, here's what you do. That's, I want you to read those, those books so that you become the source of information for your kids. So when they ask a question about God, you're not deferring them to somebody else with whom they have no relationship. Instead, you've already researched that because you're prepping and it may not be that you actually was important to you as a kid. You may never had that question. Maybe you, you feel, I'm confident that Christianity is true, and I don't even need that question answered. It doesn't shake my faith, but your kids need that question answered. And so we have to become experts in these fields where we even think that maybe we don't even need this personally. I'm not even shaken by that. I'm not interested by that, but my kids are going to be. So I'm going to bone up on this. I'm going to learn about how to answer those questions because it's relationship and information that make all the difference. You just spoke exactly to me because I was a kid that I didn't really challenge a lot. I didn't ask those questions. I've honestly, in my relationship with the Lord, have never doubted His sovereignty since I was little. Now I've had some other issues that I've been angry with the Lord and I've had to deal with. So that has been me as a parent. You just described it, that I'm doing it now for my children. It can be so intimidating. Yeah. Um, So that's why I do recommend your books because you don't make it intimidating. Um, you can speak in like layman's terms. So I encourage those who are listening, don't be intimidated to think that information is so hard to gather. You can do it. And there's resources out there, including his books. But in your experience, how early can a child begin to understand the reality of objective truth? Oh my gosh. Like not his truth, not my truth, yeah. but the oh, truth. It's so early. So I, I always, you know, I my kids were maybe in the range of, say, three to 12 when I took over as the youth pastor at my church. 
So I didn't even have kids that were in that age group, you know, but I was, it was dealing with junior high and high school. But my kids didn't want to sit in their, their own groups. They didn't want to go to the children's ministry. They wanted to be with mom and dad in the youth group room because that's where we were. And so we just said, come look, you'll have to sit, um, you know, you're just going to have to make do. <laughs> you're three to 12, but you're going to be listening to the stuff that we're going to be talking about with high schoolers. And my junior hires, I expect my junior hires to to pull it up and be at the level of the high schoolers. I never talk down to students. Hmm. I think students are capable of so much more. I mean, you already know this. If you've got a student in junior high or high school and they are needing a coach because they're going to play volleyball, well, you expect them to to get better and have coaches. And if they're going to study for some test, you're going to make sure they get all the tutoring they need. In other words, we have high expectations of our kids and they meet those in all other areas of their education. But when it comes to spiritual issues, we sometimes don't don't take don't raise the bar for them. We we I used to have a youth group when I started where I was just throwing pizza and candy and and I went to the dollar store. I would buy all this junk stuff and I had a tub of junk. I called it the tub of junk. <laughs> and I would use this as prizes for games that we would play with our students. At some point you realize, okay, look, those students are gonna walk away from the faith in their first year of college if we don't start taking this seriously. And I saw it. So I simply shifted. And I realized that, yes, not only were my junior hires capable of, 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 of comprehending what we were talking about, and it was at a college level, I was trying to prepare my high schoolers to go to university. Yeah. Now, I, I will tell you this, how we talk about the um, cosmology, let's say, the evidence from the beginning of the universe, when you're talking to students mm -hmm. is different than when you're talking to adults in the sense that I, I make it very visual. It all has to be visual. Everything. This is a visual generation. They're they're upgrading their phones not because it's got a faster operating speed. They can't even tell the difference. They're up upgrading their phones because it's got a better camera and a better screen resolution. It's visual. That's what drives everything. People now are. I think most of my traffic on our website is from mobile platforms. It probably is true for all of us who are podcasting. People are listening to this on mobile platforms. So we have to help our students and, and kind of throw the ball in a way they can catch it. But don't dumb it down. Don't, don't think for a second. Here's what I discovered. Those three to 12-year-olds who are sitting in those rooms, they caught all of it. Yeah. Now my son is 33. He does a podcast with me. Well, he started catching that stuff at 12. And I wasn't aiming at him. I call this ricochet apologetics, right? I mean, I was aiming at the high schoolers. And, and he caught all that stuff sitting in the lap of his mom or sitting in the chair next to another high schooler as a 12-year-old. It turns out they can handle a lot more. Wow. Well, I've learned that. My kids are already asking me questions <laughs> sometimes. And you know what? I've had to be honest with my kids if they ask a question. Um, you know what? Let me get back to you. I don't, Mom doesn't know, but I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to get back to you. No, that's brilliant. That's, a, that's, a, that's my first choice. Well, and as you just mentioned, this is the information age. And um, any question that our children have or anything they want to know is at their fingertips in a matter of just seconds. But of course— not all this information is good and we're trying to, we can't protect them from everything. So you've said in one of your books, uh, teach how to think, not what to think. So how can parents practice this and kind of use this in an everyday life to help our children to think critically for themselves? Well, a couple of things. We want to show the, our kids that what is um, being claimed about, about truth accurately reflects what's true in the world. So we want to be able to show our kids that it's not, we don't hold a, a view that we cannot make a case for evidentially. 
especially when the entire world is making cases for everything else, evidentially. We want our kids to be clear thinkers, to, to see that if this is true and that is true, then this is result. We want to be able to draw and connect dots. Now, a, a couple of things. You have to kind of teach your kids the view of how uh, we know what we know. This science of how we know what we know is called epistemology. And our kids have to understand how you learn things, how you can know something is true. A lot of it is going to be teaching our kids where there are logical flaws in thinking. Now, there's a couple of resources out there. I think all of our books, that's what they're all about. They're trying to give you this detective skill set that will lead you to proper inferences, right? And we're throwing that at a level that eight to 12-year-olds can catch. But I will tell you, years ago, when my kids were young, there's a book that you probably are familiar with too. I think it's one of the best-selling books for kids when it comes to a lot. It's just called The Fallacy Detective. I'm looking at it right now online. <laughs> and it's, you know, 38 lessons on how to recognize bad reasoning. And it's really written for kids in that, you know, 11-ish, 12-ish range. It's a great book to enter in. And again, don't just give it to your kids. You need because a lot of us don't even know this stuff. We, we're going to learn it alongside our kids in materials like this. So that's number one. Uh, find the books and the resources that you can read with your kids in their presence so you can have those kinds of conversations. Got to tell you what's going to happen. You read the first chapter of any one of these books, and then you're going to see something in reality the next day, and you're going to say, oh, that's just like this. <laughs> we just read about that, right? But if you're not reading along with your kids, because you think they're old enough not to read on their own, and this is written for people to read on their own, well, then you're going to miss the opportunities. And then what you're doing is just looking for opportunities in the car. If it's a lyric of a song, if it's a show they're seeing on TV, where you spot the logical fallacy, and then you're able to talk about it, not in a condemning way, right? Because I think that's part of the problem. I think about young people think, especially Gen Z, that all of us who are Christians are so vastly condemning of the culture around us that we don't even, it can't be trusted for a view of that culture because we're always negative. What I want to do instead is there are things to celebrate in culture, but there's a lot of bad stuff that we have. To, it's bad thinking. It's bad reasoning. And we want to be able to spot that with our kids and then take advantage of the song you're listening to in the car, whatever it may be, and say, hey, do you spot it? Did you, do you see the error there in that thinking? Do you, you hear what I'm hearing? Remember how we read about that? Well, do, do you hear that in the song? And that's we're just taking advantage of trying to leverage up real-time opportunities, that not creating these, just keeping our eyes open for these. And they will come, and then you get a chance to talk about it. Well, and it seems like adults need this as well. It's not just kids. Oh, yeah. You know, to be able to critically think. I, I just say that in my own life. Now, Corey, you know my husband, Corey, he is a critical thinker. Yeah. Everything has a reason. It has a why. He's always, whether we're... In a shopping mall, he'll look to see how the mall is built. He will be watching the construction. He's always got to know the reason and the why of things. And that wasn't how my mindset worked. And I've had to be start training that so I can do this for my children. Because um, it's easy to float through life and um, not work on this. And as parents, we are so tired at the end of the day that it can be hard because this is some homework for some of us, but our children are worth it. Well, let me just offer two uh, uh, words of encouragement on that. You're right. I mean, I think people hear this and they're like, oh, I got to do this whole nother layer of stuff. And it just feels overwhelming to the point where like, I just kind of take my chances. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do get that response from a lot of parents. But here's what I would say. No, I don't, I don't want you to add another layer of tasks that you think we're talking about here. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to exchange a bunch of stuff that you're doing right now that's not really helpful especially if you're a dad, 
So it turns out that, you know, the lack of dad, and I discovered this working gangs for two years, that all the different kinds of cliques of gangs I was working, and they were every type of ethnic group you could think of, racial group you could think of, part of, of town you could think of, from the very wealthy on one side of town to the people who don't have any money at all on the other side of town. There's gangs in all those places. And what do they have in common? Lack of dad. Mm. I'm just going to tell you that it's lack of debt. Sometimes it's because dad's a workaholic and he's never home. Sometimes it's because dad's an alcoholic and he's never available. Sometimes it's because dad's locked up. Whatever it may be, it's lack of dad. Dads have a role in this. You'll, you'll notice that parenting podcasts are probably more popular, let me say the sexist thing right now, with women than they are with men. Sure. Sports podcasts are probably more popular with men than they are with In other words, men, we are distracting ourselves with silly all the time. It's football season right now. And I can tell you almost everything about every team that's in the playoffs right now and why I think they're going to win. Okay, so Susie will tell me, like, well, we're talking about football. And that's her favorite season of the year is football season. So we watch a lot of games together. And she'll ask me, like, why do you know all that stuff? Well, because if you look at my podcast, probably most of them are, are sports. Hmm. So, man, here's the question. It's not a matter of me having to add another layer on. It's a matter of I've already am spending hours on something that I don't need to spend hours on. Hmm. What if I exchange those and I use that time more wisely? Don't add another dimension. Just exchange something. Well, I'll bet you all of us have something that we really, it's kind of frivolous. It's almost like, but we, you know, this can be very enjoyable, by the way, learning how to defend truth. It can be fun. And if it's not fun, you're reading the wrong resources. So it's about us, you know, having that joy of learning how to discern truth and then pass it on to our kids instead of pass on to my kids that, you know, the Rams are the team you need to support. I mean, I was a grew up as a cowboy fan and my parents did a great, my dad did a great job, my grandfather, of passing on to me that legacy. That took time and effort and he knew all the players. Well, I'm just suggesting we just exchange the legacy we're trying to pass on to our kids. Well, I think for women, you're you're talking about men with sports. And I would look at women in my age, my generation, that Netflix has been a huge distraction because it's so easy. You want mindless stuff at the end of the day when you're tired and you just turn it on and watch it for two hours. Then you're tired. So then you don't get up early in the morning to spend the time with the Lord. And so I would just encourage those maybe moms, if it's not sports, um, maybe your time with Netflix and those streaming services. Okay, another issue. I remember when I went to Liberty University. Now, of course, I grew up in a Christian home, and um, but I was the youngest of four. And he had grown up in public school, went to a Christian school. And as a freshman in Liberty, you're uh, mandatory to take a worldview class. And they didn't call it worldview class, but I remember when I entered it and they started using the word worldview. I had never heard of it before. So, of course, kids and young adults today, we are faced with many relational, moral, and spiritual challenges that, of course, we are not prepared to face in this world. We're not preparing our children to face that. So what is a worldview, in case if you were like me so many years ago and didn't know, and how can we prepare our children with a biblical worldview? Okay, I'll give you the, the speed answer on this. So the a worldview is simply the framework through which we examine everything in our experience and make decisions. It's a set of claims that we assume are true. And on the basis of those claims, we evaluate everything else. And worldviews typically make three major claims. There's more you can list, but just to give you the kind of speed answer here, it's how did we get here? How did it all get so messed up? And how do we fix it? Those are claims that worldviews make. And that makes a difference. If you don't think it makes a difference, how do we get here? That we are designed in the image of a singular, rational, orderly God. Mm. Or we are just an, evol uh, an evolved primate. 
The difference in those two answers matters. It matters in how we feel about ourselves, number one, how we see our role in our identity, and how we evaluate the world. Because if I'm only an evolved primate, why would I even think I have the rational ability at this point in my evolutionary process to make accurate decisions? On the other hand, if I am actually designed in the image of a, a single orderly rational God, well, then I already have that capacity because my worldview tells me it actually grounds rationality in a way that the other answer doesn't ground it. And if you don't think that, for example, how we what's so, what's broken that needs to be fixed, that's the second question. Hmm. Well, look, if I if I think that what's broken is that humans are born, a secular view of humanity is that we are born innately good, and we are corrupted over time by systems. We are corrupted by cultures. So if we can simply adjust the way we, the culture, we, we are, we retain our innate goodness. Well, okay, our view is no, actually you're innately fallen and that all you will do is corrupt whatever system they put in place. The system's not the answer. The problem is an internal heart condition. That's a different kind of view of humans. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of view. If you think, for example, that the problem is that the unequal distribution of wealth that's a very Marxist idea. There's the problem. Well, then your solution looks different, right? How do we solve the problem? Well, if we are going to solve the problem, if we think that everyone's born innately good and systems corrupt us, you want to change systems. If you think that everyone is, it's about, about inequality of distribution of wealth, then you want to redistribute the wealth. If you think the problem is that you are innately fallen and separated from God by your rebellious nature, then the solution is the gospel. Mm. So you can see that, that whatever worldview you hold begins to shape the way you see the problems we're facing and the solutions you find for those problems. As a Christian, because I know what our problem is, I always say it this way, and I've been saying it this way a lot more recently, is the gospel, and I do this a lot with all police officers, right? And, and the Billy Graham uh, VGEA has got a wonderful um, service it provides for police officers right now in, in terms of marriage counseling in, in Alaska. And you know, we've been doing that in the last year with you guys. And so I always say that it turns out the gospel cures pretty much every kind of stupid you can think of, hmm. <laughs> including cop stupid and culture stupid. And whatever stupid you see out there, whatever problem, well, why do I think that's the case? Because I've got a worldview that establishes for me how we got here, what the problems are, and how we fix those problems. So worldviews matter because they lead you to different kinds of solutions. I want to shift for a little bit to, okay, now we're parents sitting around our kitchen table. And I say our kitchen table is our greatest mission field. That's where we're going to create that relationship. I mean, Corey and I've been having this conversation because honestly, a kid around the kitchen table at night is almost a battlefield for our family because we're all tired. We're grumpy. We're trying to get the kids to eat that are not wanting to eat their dinner. And I told them at the beginning of this year that we have to so focus that our kitchen table is a joyful time for our family. It's a time that we can cultivate conversations with our kids because when they're teenagers, that's when they'll come tell us what their friends are up to. Um, and what's going on, even if it's a truth we don't want to hear. Or even in our car rides, like my mom, the car rides to and from school were her greatest mission field. That's when she talked to us about these tough conversations. So I want to have, like, if we're as parents, what are some of these questions? And I know there's hundreds we could choose from. What are some of these questions that we might get that we might not be prepared for? And you're going to help give us those answers if you're up for it. Well, this is a tough challenge, but we'll, we'll try. So, um... First off, and this could be, I might pick some from young kids all mm -hmm. the way up to high school. Yeah. Who knows? Um, how do we know, like if we looked, I've heard this with college students too. We look at the gospels 
and the Gospels are kind of like all a little bit different stories. They don't really line up. So does that mean that they are false because they don't tell the same story always? Yeah, there are variations in the way the accounts are written. How many angels are at the tomb? How many women are at the tomb? What's the sign of where Jesus is crossed? It depends on the gospel you read and you get different kinds of answers. And that can be, I think, for a lot of people disturbing. Let me just say one thing before I preface all this. Look, I think sometimes young people think that we use a different system of knowing, a different epistemological approach as Christians than the rest of the world does on everything else. In other words, you know, the world kind of makes decisions or says you got to follow the science and, you know, it's all based evidence-based, this evidence-based, that. And then you get to your Christian beliefs and it's like, no, no, that's just blind faith. That's just about, you know, just, just trust. You don't need to, to test any of that. You don't need to have any support for any of that. Just trust. That wasn't the way I became a Christian. I was 35 and I was a detective and I was a very skeptical, uh, anti-Christian kind of person by nature. And I didn't have anyone in my family who was a Christian. So, and I was raised here in California, I didn't even know any Christians. And I felt like, hey, I was pretty the most part, I felt like this is a joke unless you can tell me why this is evidentially true. So my way into Christianity was by testing it evidentially. Yeah, you can do that. I think a lot of people don't realize you can do that. And so a lot of it for me is about how do we, one of the reasons why I got interested were those variations you're talking about. I sat in a church, this guy uh, kind of threw the ball so I could catch it. He said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, said a bunch of really great things, really important person. So I thought, really? I bought a Bible to see if that was true. Just thought I was going to read the wisdom statements of Jesus. Here's what I noticed immediately. The gospel accounts are accounts in which the authors want me to believe that this stuff happened in a chronology. Yet their chronologies are not always the same. Compare Mark to Luke. Also, the stories were slightly different. And I thought, ooh, this is exactly what I see in eyewitness accounts every day in my professional work. No eyewitnesses ever agree. As a matter of fact, the one thing I ask dispatch when they call us in the middle of the night and I'm an hour behind the murder, I'll say, there, I'm sure there are still police officers there, the uh, the patrol officers. I want them to separate the eyewitnesses. Do not let them talk to each other until I get there. Why? Because if they talk to each other, I get one story five times. That is, no, they've corrupted the stories because they now started to align their stories so they all match. No, I want them to be as sloppy and as apparently different as they're going to be in reality because I'm going to puzzle that back together and get the most robust view of what actually happened. Don't you try to work those things out. And when I saw that the variations in the Gospels were similar to the variations I see in supplemental reports in cold cases, I was like, wow, because, you know, it'd be very easy to to iron those things out. If you're going to tell the lie, you should do a better job of it because you're leaving these gaps and these variations in the accounts that would cause some concern. But this is just the nature of eyewitness accounts. You know, for example, Papias says, an early church father, that, that, that Mark, when he's writing the account at the feet of Peter, he is accurate if not orderly, and the word he uses for orderly is the exact same word that Luke uses in the beginning of his gospel when he says to Theophilus, I'm writing an orderly account for you. So Luke's account tries to be more chronologically in the right order, whereas Mark's account is just more thematic. You know, it's about the themes that Peter was preaching on in Rome. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason, there's always a reason why there's slight variations between the accounts. The good detective uses an evidential approach to discern the differences. Now, here's what happens. As Christians, we often don't think, well, you could actually investigate these gospel accounts like eyewitness accounts. Mm. Yeah, there's a template that we use with eyewitnesses. You could. We have to make that choice. Our kids are wondering why we don't. 
Because the entire world says, well, you can only know something if you go through these evidential steps. Oh, but Christianity, yeah, that's a fairy tale you want to believe without even, even examining it. What, what good reason do you have? Why would you believe the Gospels are telling you something true about Jesus? Well, I think all of our kids have to have an answer for that question. I have an answer for that question. And by the way, that's not an answer I can give you on Twitter. That's not a 280-character answer. I need a couple hours because the case is so robust and so cumulative, I can tell you how I assembled it. But in the end, I'm not going to try to do that on Twitter. So I need, I need my kids to grow up. I mean, they've been, they're sick of hearing about this evidence, okay? Because they all I ever did was talk about that stuff. But if I had to say to them, okay, well, try to recite for me why you think this is true, I think they could probably sketch together the overall cumulative case because they've listened to it so many times from me. I am going to put a link to your books and your children's book, all of them, and even your new book we're going to talk about in a little bit. We'll put a link in the show notes mm -hmm. for that. Okay, let's go on to another question. Let's say if my friend is Hindu or any other religion and thinks what they believe is truth, then how do I know my faith is truth as a Christian? So I'm going to go through a really quick primer course in the difference between objective. Yes, we were probably asking, we could do a yeah, whole yeah, podcast that one on question, all these right? questions. So I'm, not, I'm putting you on the spot to see how good yeah. you are. <laughs> or how bad I am. So so here's here's what I would say to that. You have to understand the difference. So our kids need to understand the difference between subjective truth claims and objective truth claims. That's the only terms I use when it comes to these two uh, terms you could use for truth. I don't use the expression absolute truth. It's objective or subjective. Why? Because that that's how the truth is grounded. So for example, if I say the chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert, well, that is a subjective claim. I, as the subject, uh, am expressing my opinion. You might have a different, you, that would be my truth about chocolate, about dessert. You might have your truth, okay? But there are some things that are not grounded in the subject who holds them. They are grounded, I'm, I'm holding up a, right now, I'm looking at a, a mouse on my computer, my computer mouse. This is a computer mouse. That is not a claim that I can change by changing my mind. I cannot say, well, now it's a cup of coffee. I cannot do that. I don't have, it's grounded not in my personal opinion, the subject. It's grounded in the object under consideration. So when it comes to God's existence, this is not a, I, I, it's not a subjective claim. It's not my truth because God could exist or he might not exist, but it's going to be grounded in the object known as God. In other words, I cannot by will of my own opinion make God exist if he doesn't. And I can't by will of my own opinion as the subject prevent God from existing if he does. God either exists or he doesn't and it's grounded in the object known as God, <laughs> okay? This is an objective claim about the world. And all you have left to do with objective claims is determine if they're true or false. It's kind of hard to say, you know, like I have a view about chocolate chip cookies. Well, you're wrong. You're, you're, that's false. Well, no, I actually hold that view. No, you don't hold that view. No, actually, I get to decide if I hold the view. I hold the view. We don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out if the subjective view is true or false, but objective views, objective claims, that's all that's left to do is determine if it's true or false. Because there are false objective claims. If I told you my car can fly to the moon, well, that's a claim that's not grounded in my opinion. It's grounded in the object known as my car, but it's a false claim about that object. So, so it's a false objective claim. There are false objective claims. So the, the claim God exists is either true or false, but it's not a matter of personal opinion. So if uh, somebody of different worldview says to you, well, in my view, Hinduism is the best reflection of what the supernatural is or what who God is or any of that. Okay, well, first of all, remember that all of these views of God are contradictory. So if you're Jewish, for example, you don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. We contradict each other. We could both be wrong or one of us could be right. 
But we can't both be right because we hold contradictory claims. And this is the nature of contradictory claims. So what's left for us to do is to, fig to figure out if any of those claims are true, because they're going to exclude the opposite. This is not just true for Christianity. This is true for any view of the world. If you're an atheist and you hold an atheistic worldview, you are excluding other worldviews that are theistic. This is the nature of truth claims. When they are contradictory, one could be right, or they could all be wrong, but they can't all be right. And this all comes back to the homework we do with our children so that they can critically think for themselves, and it's all full circle. That's right. If God is a God of love, mm -hmm. and he says he loves children, I can then why does see he where this is going. I know, kids ask this, and it's one of the first ones coming. Why, Mommy, why does he allow bad things to happen? Why does he allow suffering? Okay, well, a couple of things. This is a bigger question. There's, uh, I get this question a lot when you work in murders where you've got an innocent victim, a child who is killed, and the parents want to know why. Mm -hmm. They're not always even Christians. They aren't always even believers. Mm -hmm. They just want to know, why did this happen to my daughter? And I have to kind of walk them through the seven or eight reasons why this gets always cumulative. But your kids aren't probably going to want to build a cumulative case. You need to know quickly. I say, I always look at it this way. Uh, aren't there times when you thought as your parent, you thought as my as my, ch my child, that you thought I was doing something evil to you. For example, let's just say that you're sick and you had to have a shot of penicillin um, to cure an infection. Well, you know, in the moment that I'm holding you down as a one-year-old and putting that needle in your arm, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything good. It feels like you're evil. If you love me, why would you allow me to experience this evil in this doctor's office? Why would you allow me to have to reset my leg or do all the things that are painful that I, as a parent, though, because I have a little more runway and I can see downfield a little bit, I know that this thing that feels bad right now is actually for your good. Some of the things we experience in life and I think you'll see this. I mean, the problem we have sometimes is that we think that God is unloving because we're going through a season of doubt or hardship. But don't think for a second, every success story has in it as some part of the story, a season of suffering or a season of, of failure or a season of hardship. As a matter of fact, the reason why we call it a success story at the end of life is because you've overcome the hardship to begin with. Without any hardship, there's no success. So I think we have to help our kids understand that, yes, there'll be times, just like as your parent, I have to discipline you and you think, that was lame, that was unfair. And then when you're like 20, you're like thinking, okay, I get it. Especially when you have your own kids. But I get, when I mean, our kids are young, mm -hmm. we just have to help them to see something in their even younger years that felt like at that time was unfair, but now they understand why it was so good. You know, why I didn't let you eat that entire chocolate cake? You watched your cousin throw it all up, right? When he did it, I didn't let you do that. It felt like I was being harsh, but what I was really doing was protecting you for your own good. I think God's role is often like that in our lives. Uh, we'll, we'll just ask a, maybe one more. How, or unless you, do you have any that you see as um, parents, you know, seven to 12, the questions you get a lot, is there ones that are kind of reoccurring? Well, I think by the time you get into junior high, for sure, you're going to see certain patterns emerge. Here's what I, I was at a conference in Arkansas uh, for the Arkansas Baptist uh, congregations. And, and, and I remember a lady walked up and she was doing Sunday school and she was doing um, fifth graders, fifth graders. And she said, the question I get all the time is, you know, uh, why does Satan do it this way? Why does Satan behave that way? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of questions. I kid you not, within the next hour, I get someone walk up. She's doing seventh graders. And she said this to me, the question I'm getting is, why do you believe there's a Satan? Hmm. 
Now, do you see the subtle difference? So the, the, the fifth and sixth graders, they, they accept from us that there is a Satan. We don't need to make a case for that. They already accept that this is just what mom and dad say. Now the question is, well, why does Satan work this way? But just two years later, they're like, no, I don't think there's a Satan. I don't even know why I would believe there's a Satan. So I think a lot of what's happening for young people is, why do you think any of this nonsense is true, number one, especially when the world around me, you're gonna, look, we see this every year. We just released a report of a, from Pew, Pew Report uh, last week, I think it was, uh, showed again that every year we lose about a percent mm -hmm. of people who claim a Christian identity. And those people are not becoming atheists and agnostics. They're just becoming people who are religiously unaffiliated. So your kids are far more likely in the next 10 years to meet people who are religiously unaffiliated than they were 10 years ago. And so we have to be ready to help them answer, why do we think this is true at all? And those probably going to be two areas. The problem of evil, which you already mentioned. If there's a loving God who's all-powerful, why doesn't he act to stop this? Either he doesn't have the power to stop it, which means he's not all-powerful, or he doesn't care to stop it, which means he's not all-loving. So which is it, Dad? Hmm. That's going to be one of the kinds of questions you're going to get. And it's going to be injustices they see in the world. Somebody in there that they know personally has passed away. Something is evil that they see. Why couldn't God stop that? Sure. That's number one. Number two, you're going to see, this is a trickier one, is why would I believe Christianity is true if it's so anti-homosexual or so anti-gender fluidity or so the, the things that they are being told are normal in this generation. So it's, you know, it, it, how many times did you hear growing up? I don't necessarily like Christianity, but I do like that Jesus guy. Well, now what's under attack is the straight, plain, moral teaching of Jesus. And make no mistake about it. If you are attacking the moral teacher of the master, you are attacking the master. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we have to be able to do now is to help our kids to know, and this is one thing we have to be careful about. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of truth. It's the highest priority. I would much rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. Mm. And so it doesn't, it strikes me as noble to want to stand up for what is true. And Jesus tells us this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed. At the very end, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, right? Mm. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, not if, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil because of me. That's not an if statement. That's that's like, we gotta help our kids to see that truth is so important and Jesus is so important that that you have to be willing to to be unpopular in certain, certain yeah. places with certain people who hold different beliefs that Jesus would never endorse. And I am a Christ follower. That means that the only person I want to be seen next to is Jesus of Nazareth. And I think we got to help our kids to see that. Also, this is something that you'll find in the Gospel of John that I think is, is, is super powerful, is that the goal is not heaven. The goal is Jesus. Hmm. So when Jesus is about to leave and his disciples are like, oh my gosh, where are you going to go? He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house, there are many rooms. If this were not so, I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will. And I will take you to myself mm. so that where 
I am. There you also will be. And you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas says, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Mm. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why do I go through all that? Because... It, there's a in that phrase that 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 passage. There's been for two thousand years we've been talking about. So there's two things here. There's there's the, the the where where are you going? That's the goal. Is it heaven? And then the way you get there. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, and you know, the way to get where I'm going. No, he says, and you know the way where I'm going. He combines those two. Though it turns out the goal is also the way. Hmm. That, that our goal, that, that the promise of God in eternity, our kids need to know this, is not that you will go to a heaven because you admit you're good. It's, it's that the goal is, in eternity, is that you'll be reunited to the master that you so desperately miss. That's what he was trying to tell his disciples. Mm. So if our kids don't love Jesus enough to want and to expect to be suffer, <laughs> to, to, to be criticized, to be ostracized sometimes, to be falsely accused of all kinds of evil because of him, then they're never going to do it. So we have to do all we can to show them that the goal that God has in eternity is to be reunited to Jesus. He is not just the the, the way to get there. He's the goal of going. Hmm. And that's what I think that passage helps us to see. And so a lot of it is, look, and this is why people say, well, if my grandmother was a good person, but she wasn't a believer. Look, the promise of God in eternity is not just a heaven for people. It's to be reunited to Jesus. If you never loved Jesus here, then don't be surprised you won't be with Jesus there. Why would you want to be? You never loved him here. So a lot of this is how do we make Jesus beautiful to our kids? Hmm. Well, and that's a good bridge into your next book of why Jesus still matters. And you just wrote a book. I have it right here sitting next to me. I have quite a few books. You know, I mentioned to you, I'm living in only 900 square feet right now, currently, and only had to bring a select few books. And sure enough, of the few books, I do have three of yours on my shelf. Oh, that's so, see, I feel that's, that's, a, that's a compliment, so. But you have a new book, Person of Interest. Tell us why this book and why now? Well, look, I just wanted to write something that showed that if Jesus is who he said he was, wouldn't you expect more than just a few gospels in the Christian scripture to make the case for this? Wouldn't you expect that if he is the creator of the universe who steps into his creation, that he would have a huge ripple effect, that the fuse leading up to the detonation we call Jesus and the fallout that follows Jesus would reflect the truth of what happens in that first century? Well, that's what it actually happens. You can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus in all of its detail just from those aspects of human culture that most atheists love and think matter, which is, you know, literature, art, music, education, science, world religions even. So it turns out that that's the kind of impact he has. He has this incredible impact. And that's, I'm just trying to, and I was only about halfway through this book when I realized this is not a book that necessarily, it does make a case for Jesus, but it's not, that's not what it's about. It's, I realized that as I'm halfway through, I need to go back and rewrite the first half of the chapters because hmm. this is really a book about why Jesus is so, un, has such unparalleled beauty and majesty and impact on the world. In a, in a world that thinks that Jesus is either a fictional character or just a regular guy in the first century, and none of the miracles are true. Mm -hmm. Well, none of those two explanations would account for why he's had this kind of impact. Mm -hmm. I don't even think young people are aware of the impact of Jesus in those five or six areas. They, they, you, you can make a kind of briefcase, but if you can see how much impact he's had and how much of the story of Jesus can be reconstructed, say, for example, from the history of science, 
Yeah. From the history, do you realize the top fifteen universities in the world today were all founded by Christ, by Christ followers? Even though they, most of them do not even acknowledge Jesus anymore, but they still have their campuses and their early buildings and their charters. And if you just looked at those campuses, you can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus just from the campuses of the top fifteen universities in the world. Who else in the history of people can make that claim? There's no one. Yeah. And that's my whole point. If you can't find another fictional character who's impacted that, and you won't, it's reasonable to infer that Jesus is something more than a fictional character. And if you can't find another living human who's had that kind of impact, it's reasonable to infer he's something more than just another living human. So I do think that when our kids see the kind of impact that Jesus has had, that everything that's behind us right now, I mean, we're looking at each other, kind of doing this long distance, every bit of technology, the science fathers were dominantly Christ followers. And everything that we see in technology and in engineering and in all the sciences is so utterly dependent on Jesus and his worldview that there is no way to erase Jesus from history. You'd have to destroy way too much to do it. Well, and it's, um, I love that you always bring your own um, professional experience from your law enforcement days into it because I'm going to tell a secret is I was reading the book, um, Sitting by the Pool. I'm down here in Florida. And I didn't have, of course, time to finish it in one sitting. But I wanted to know the story of how the outcome happened with the murder story he told. So I skipped ahead to read that. Okay, so everyone tells me that, right? And so I thought, oh my goodness, this is, but this is, you know, we, and, and, and Sissy, we, we learned that from children's books. And so here's what we discovered is that I want to teach kids these ways of thinking critically. But I knew that if I just had a book about thinking critically, no one who's going to want to read that. So what I did in every one of the kids books is include a mystery. Sometimes it's a shoebox. How did the shoebox get in the claw in the in the attic? How, what, how did this little puppy come into our neighborhood? There are mysteries that the kids solve over 10 chapters. And then in each chapter, we turn that skill set toward Jesus or toward God. So this is really a kid's book for adults, person of interest. We give you a 10 chapter. Well, good. I don't think that was a compliment there to me, Jim. <laughs> I'm like the five-year-old skipping wanting the well, story. Well, everyone just says the same thing. So it's, you're not the only one who says that, but I think it does at least give you a segue into the story of Jesus by learning a skill set in a homicide that you can then turn and leverage toward Jesus. Well, it's just all the more importance, as you said earlier, that age where a child will make a decision for Christ is dropping, you know, down, I think you said to 12 years old. It is so critical. And I hope this is an encouragement. And this conversation just sparks an interest and sparks a passion into parents who are listening. Because in the world we are in, between education systems and culture, it can be um, daunting as a parent. And um, as my, like I said, my kids are starting at that age and asking questions. I want to be prepared for them. Um, I want to be able to give an account. The Bible says that. And that's not just to people we might meet on the streets or at a coffee shop, but that give that account to our children be able to have an answer. And it's also okay not to have the answer, but tell them you're going to figure it out and come back to them with it. So thank you. Thank you for all you do. As you mentioned, you do help us at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. You are so gracious with your time and spending time with our law enforcement appreciation program up at Alaska and Operation Heal Our Patriots as well. So we're grateful to you and your wife and just the ministry you have taken all around the world, but especially how you've partnered with us. 
Well, I, I, I'm the one who's been blessed by that. And, and I, I will tell you that deeply. Um, we, we felt like this was a shape that we could fit into. You know, I did my entire career in law enforcement. But what you guys are doing at BGEA, I mean, I know probably if you're listening to Sissy's podcast, maybe you, you already know all this. But if you're not aware, there is no one in the world that is doing the kind of ministry that's being done at BGEA and at Samaritan's Purse. Hmm. There just isn't. So we are just glad to be in some small uh, frame of reference where we can just kind of hang out in the shadow of what you guys are doing, because I just feel like there's nobody else in the world who's doing it the way you guys are doing it. So I'm glad to be part of it. Well, thank you for being a faithful and a sweet partner with us. We appreciate it. And thank you for joining me on another episode of Fearless. Thanks for having me. I so appreciate you. Thank you for joining me on this awesome episode with Jay Warner Wallace. I have used his books as a go-to over the last couple of years to help me know what I believe and why I believe it. But especially as we're talking about family and raising our children, he's got children's books uh, um, for this subject as well. So I will put all his books in a link in my show notes, so check them out. But also, as we're talking about family and raising a family, I'm also going to put a link to my Fearless Family devotional that just came out. You're just helping us prepare our children for the world that we are facing and how we can do that as a family. Once again, thank you for joining me, Sissy Graham Lynch, on another episode of Fearless. I encourage you to follow me on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also check out if you want to get caught up on the latest episodes of Fearless on sissygramlynch.com, helping you have a fearless faith and a compromising culture. I wasn't given the spirit